Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. We're starting a brand new series tonight, Paradigm, called Origins. Why does this matter? I'll tell you why. Because so much of how you see the present is shaped by how you see the past. You see, so much of what we are and our identity is shaped, sometimes erroneously, by our faulty perceptions of history. And that is why origin and what we're about to talk about tonight is so, so crucial because so much of our sense of vision and life's destination has to do with our sense of our origins. This is why so many things like, let's see, uh, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, those things have just blown up recently because people want to know, where have I come from? Uh, It seems like this is the time where origin stories are really the thing, like Marvel movies, like Man, don't let this leave paradigm, but I'm kind of into the Marvel movies, I admit it. I know, you wouldn't expect it. Just frivolous entertainment, I know, but if you're watching the Marvel movies, you know that a lot of the Marvel movies coming out right now, it's all about the origin stories of the characters and character development and who they are and where they got. Yeah, that's kind of the thing right now. I, I go into you know, places for lunch or coffee, and you didn't used to see this at restaurants. Nobody really cared, but now when you walk in, the first thing you see at a lot of coffee shops or restaurants is their origin story, like how we got started, where we came from. And you know, the Bible is a book about origins. In fact, I'm going to ask you to turn in the Word of God tonight to the very first book of the Bible. It should be easy to find, even if you don't know a lot about the Bible. Just turn to this front of the Bible, and you'll find it. It's the book of Genesis. Genesis is a word that means origins. It means beginnings. It's the book of beginnings. And we're going to look tonight at the origin of the universe, the origin of everything. Where did we come from? Uh, How did we get here? Uh, What is the origin of the universe, of the cosmos? And what is happening in Genesis chapter 1 is Moses has just led the children of Israel out of Egyptian captivity. They've been in captivity under Egyptian tyranny for 400 years. And so you can imagine the ancient Hebrews whom God would choose to one day bring the Messiah, the Jews would bring us Jesus They didn't know who they were. They really had lost their identity because they lost their sense of history. They'd been in slavery for centuries. That's their identity. We're just a band of liberated slaves. Who are we anyway? And so God gives Moses a pen. Actually, it wasn't a pen. It would have been like a chisel, okay? You've heard of the Ten Commandments. You know that story, right? So he's literally writing in stone. Well, not all of it. He wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. But he begins to tell him the origin story. And here's the reality, guys. The people of God at this time, the Hebrews, it's not just their origin story. It is our story. See, they left Egypt with a worldview of the Egyptians. They had a sense of Egyptian history and the gods and the deities of pagan idolatry. And in Egyptian worldview, it was the sun god Ray that was the originator of everything. 
And so in chapter one of the book of Genesis, God begins to give them the true origin story and is the origin of us all. And you're gonna see tonight that this is so crucial that we get this right because though we're not living in an Egyptian culture, unlike the ancient Hebrews with an Egyptian worldview, we're living increasingly in a secular culture with a secular worldview. And there's really only two worldviews as it relates to origin. Where did we come from and who are we? There's the biblical worldview that says God created all that is and he created me and you, but there's the secular worldview and that we're immersed in increasingly and it basically says this, God isn't there. God's not real or if he is real, he's, he's not really there. He doesn't really care. God is minimized in this worldview and the secular worldview says our lives are nothing more honestly than just a series of cosmic accidents and our life is really nothing more than a series of highly improbable random accidents and we're just really highly evolved hominids. That's really our we are. And the universe is just kind of a cold, calloused universe, and it's just kind of survival of the fittest, and you live and then you die, and then that's it. It's one or the other. And how you answer that question will have everything to do with how you live your life. I was so thankful to sit and listen to Becca's story tonight, weren't you? Becca, thank you for the courage, the transparency. I think we ought to give it up for her right now for being honest about her redemption story. What a God story. But what I love to hear was this. She found out who she really is. Wait a minute, I'm not an atheistic lesbian. I was born to be a child of God. See, who I am is defined by whose I am. And that is why the origin story is so crucial because in the end, the origin story has to do with our identity and our identity defines my ultimate destiny. Let's pick it up right here in Genesis 1 and verse 1. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's amazing to me how controversial the first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible is. I mean, that is a highly controversial, hotly debated verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's the deal. That's either true or it's not. Either God did or he didn't. Either God is or he isn't. And the ramifications of which uh, uh, option you choose is entirely huge. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can we trust that to be true? Here's the reality. Many people want to say Genesis 1-1 is not true because if it is true, then that means there is one God and it ain't you. There's one God and it's not me. And I want you to understand the implication is this. If Genesis 1-1 is not true, then none of the rest of the Bible is either. You see, that is why this one verse is so hotly debated in our society today. Because if Genesis 1-1 isn't true, and God didn't create the heavens and the earth, then the love of God isn't true either. Uh, then the salvation of God isn't true either. There's no reason to believe in the hope of God if he's not a creator God. See, the reality is apart from Genesis 1-1 being true, none of the rest can be trusted to be true either. And so why in the world would any of us believe Genesis 1-1 is true? I'm gonna to suggest to you tonight that it's actually the most rational, plausible option as it relates to the universe's origin. 
This isn't just blind faith, like cross your fingers and hope is true. No, I'm convinced, actually, having done a little bit of analysis of my own, that the most rational, intellectual conclusion we can come to is, in fact, that Genesis 1-1 is true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the reason I'm so convinced of this, listen, paradigm, the origins of the universe cannot be explained exclusively through scientific or naturalistic causes. Through the very laws of science, one has to come to the conclusion, in my opinion, that the most plausible logical explanation for the origin of the cosmos, the origins of the heavens and the earth, is in fact a God, a being that lives and exists outside of time and space, that is self-existing, that has always existed. And the reason I say that is even the laws of science says that it's an impossibility, scientifically, for something to come from nothing. Now we add billions and billions and billions of years to it, like, you know, at one time there was nothing. Billions and billions and billions of years went by, and then all of a sudden, bang, there was something. But class, think about this with me. Even if you don't want to think biblically, think logically. A billion times a billion times a billion times a trillion times a trillion times a billion times a trillion times nothing is still nothing. See, scientifically, it's impossible for there to be nothing one moment and then bang, out of nothingness, you have somethingness. Now understand, this is the laws of science. Science has proven the universe is not eternal. At one time, astronomers, scientists believed the universe was infinite, that it was eternal, that the cosmos has always existed. But the laws of thermodynamics, entropy specifically, has revealed that actually there's no way the universe could be eternal because the energy in the universe is finite. Scientists have discovered that the energy in the universe is actually slowly running down. And theoretically, billions of years from now, the universe will implode on itself because the energy in the universe is limited. It's not infinite. The implication is the universe could not be eternal. The universe is in fact finite, meaning it had to have a beginning. Now I want you to see, using the very laws of science, Genesis 1-1 has to be true. Uh, scientists call it the law of cause and effect. Did you know scientists, using the law of cause and effect, have actually traced through the law of cause and effect, the origins of the universe, the beginnings of the universe, meaning they can see one effect and they can trace the cause. And then they find another effect and they trace the cause. And then they see another effect and they find the cause. And they find yet another effect and they find a cause. They've actually used the law of cause and effect and they traced it back to the origin of the universe. But when they get back to the origin of the universe, they can see an effect but they can't find the cause. Could it be just maybe that God himself is the cause that they can't find? You see, I would suggest the most rational, logical, plausible explanation for the origins of the universe is in fact Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to see tonight that there is no contradiction between religion and science. And this is what people try to tell you. Well, you either have to be a person of faith or a person of reason. So these are mutually exclusive. No, the reality is God gave us all a brain. Tonight, guess what we're going to do? We're going to use them. 
Yeah, I know you've used them all day and you just want to veg, but you don't get to. All right? God gave us a brain. In fact, Isaiah 1.18 says, come now, let us reason together. And I want you to see that simply through sound reason, it is not a stretch at all of our intellectualism to say, you know, God had to have done this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Scientifically, it's an impossibility for something to come out of nothing. Scientifically, we know the universe had a beginning, and because it had a beginning, there must have been a beginner. And I want you to see the origin of the universe cannot be explained exclusively through scientific or naturalistic causes. If it cannot be explained entirely naturalistically, it must have began supernaturally. You see, it's entirely rational to conclude the universe must have had a supernatural beginning. I have no problem personally as a Bible-believing Christian, and I personally believe Genesis chapter 1 is not allegory. I think God gave it to Moses to be read literally as an origin story of our history. I personally, though, see no reason to, I can't believe in the Big Bang Theory, because I'm personally convinced that when God spoke something out of nothing, it probably made a loud noise. Certainly plausible to me. How about you? I want you to see, you don't have to check your brain to be a Christian. You don't have to check your brain to be a follower of Jesus. God gave you a brain for a reason. Now we are saved by faith because anything you cannot see and touch personally, there's an element of faith. Anything you can't prove conclusively, there's still an element of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's an element of faith, of course, that it takes to be a Christian. But it's not blind faith, it's not Christ crossing your fingers and hoping it's true. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created in the Hebrew is bara. It means perfect. It means polished. It means complete. Now, you're going to need to hang on to that. I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. But in this opening verse, we learn a lot about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the English word translated from the Hebrew name of God, which is Elohim. Now, God in the book of Genesis reveals himself through many names, and there's lots of skeptics and antagonists that say, well, all that does is prove that Genesis has multiple authors because there's multiple names of God used. Again, that's just silly, honestly. I personally have more than one name. How about you? I am Philip Brian Hopper. I haven't been called Philip Brian in a long time. Don't you start tonight. (laughs) But there's a good chance you got more than one name. Why shouldn't God have more than one name? Uh, the name most used in the book of Genesis is Elohim. It's used over 2,500 times. Elohim implies that he is the creator God. Now you've heard, uh, maybe if you've been in church a long time, you've heard the name Yahweh or Jehovah. He reveals himself with that name as the God of the covenant. See, one name reveals himself as creator. The other name reveals himself as savior. That's just one example of how God uses multiple names to reveal his character about himself to us. Because remember, Remember, whose you are is what defines who you are. And I'm a child of God. I'm created by God. Elohim is that name of creator. Now, what is interesting here, y'all, is El is the singular name of God, El. But it's not El that's in Genesis 1-1. It's Elohim. 
Elohim implies a plurality of majesty. He's revealing himself from the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book that he is a triune God, that he is one God, eternally existing in three persons. In fact, you get down to Genesis 126, talk about the origins of the human race, and Chad's going to do that next week, and you have the origins of the human race in Genesis 126. God, singular, says, let us, plural, make man in our image, in our likeness. And God is revealing himself through Elohim, not as multiple gods, but rather a plurality of majesty within the Godhead. We know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, eternal existing in three persons, three beings within the Godhead that makes up one God. Now, it's interesting. God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to think about creation. It's absolutely remarkable. According to Romans 1 and verse 20, creation itself reveals even the invisible things of God by the things that he has made, by the things that we can see. God shows us a visible creation to show us in some way the invisible creator. Romans 1 and verse 20. And if indeed God is a triune being, then it would seem that creation ought to be in the image of the architect. And you can see it everywhere you look in creation. Scientists sometimes call this intelligent design. Uh, But I'm going to put it really, really in simple terms. If God is three in one, then what we can see in his creation is he made everything three in one. Think about this. He made time, past, present, and future. We live in a three-dimensional place and space. There is height, there is width, there is depth. Everything God has done, it reflects the triune nature of the creator. Think about this for just a moment. You can talk about anything you want to. The light from the sun comes in three forms. It's visible, infrared, and ultraviolet. Everywhere you look, it comes in three forms. Matter, if it's under normal conditions, comes in one of three forms. You have solids, you have gas, you have liquids. You can go on and on, go as far as you want to. He made you and I, body, soul, and spirit. We are three and one. He made us a triune being, just like him. I'm not a musician, but I know a little bit about music. If you are a musician, you know that music comes in three parts. There are three elements to music. You have rhythm, you have melody, you have harmony. If you're an artist, you know that all the various colors that are known today come back to three primary colors. Uh, blue, red, and yellow, yes? I want you to see, take this as far as you want to. To the very tiniest elements of the universe, the atom, protons, neutrons, and electrons. You see, God as the creator, Elohim, has made his creation to reflect his triune image, and it's everywhere we look in all of creation. Now, let's go on here and look at verse two, and look what it says. And the earth was without form and void, And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, what you were taught is that Genesis 1-1 is kind of a summary statement, and God threw this big blob of silly putty into the cosmos, and he began forming it and shaping it and working on it. Genesis 1-1 is just kind of a summary statement. Over the next seven days, you know, he goes to work shaping it and putting life on it. Uh, And that's kind of what I was taught growing up in Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And that maybe if you grew up in church, well, you were taught too. But that is not what this says. Genesis 1-2. 
Now here's what happened, when I was about your age, I started studying some of this for myself, and what I found out is sometimes what we learn in church was more tradition than it really is biblical doctrine. And as those that follow the Son of God, we must be willing to follow the Word of God, even if it goes contrary to something I was taught or something I grew up to believe. We must be willing to follow the text wherever it leads. And what I'm going to show you from Genesis 1-2 is that there is a space in time, an unspecified amount of time between Genesis 1-1 and between Genesis 1-2, and that is in fact where Lucifer rebelled against God. We don't know how much time. I'm not tonight arguing there was a lot of time, and a lot of people say, oh, Phil, you're just trying to argue for millions of years, and you're an old earth theorist instead of a young earth theorist. It's not at all what I'm doing. What I'm going to show you tonight is this, guys. Listen very, very carefully. The test of orthodoxy in Christianity is how the earth got here, not how long it's been here. I'm telling you that because sometimes we as Christians lose a lot of credibility arguing over things that frankly don't matter. Like I was taught growing up, the earth is 6,000 years old. Uh, because there have been mathematicians, Bishop Usher, that takes the genealogies in the book of Genesis and does the math and traces back Adam's creation to about 4004 BC. And because they were taught that Adam was created the same time as the earth, well, the earth is 6,000 years old. I'm not arguing For an old earth, I'm not arguing for a young earth. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is we're arguing for the wrong things. Nobody ever died and went to a Christless eternity because they didn't believe the earth was 6,000 years old. That is not the condition of salvation. It's not the condition of being a Christian. The test of orthodoxy in Christianity is not how long the earth has been here, but how it got either. Either God did or God didn't. Either either God created all that is, or he didn't. And how long it's been here is not the real issue, as much as how it got here. Now, if you want to know my opinion, listen, I'm personally convinced the earth is probably older than some people believe and probably a lot younger than other people believe. The truth is we don't know how old the earth is. And if there is a gap in time between Genesis 1, 1, and 1-2, it is frankly undateable. Uh, when it comes to those that believe the earth is millions and millions, even billions of years old, listen, I learned a long time ago not to take with a great deal of value the dating systems even of modern scientists and modern technology. Here, here's an example. Here's just one reason why. So I was actually alive in 1980. I know that's amazing for some of you. Like, wow, he is old. Yeah, I was alive in 1980. I was in the sixth grade. But I was alive, and I can remember when Mount St. Helens, Washington blew up, blew its stack, like it was big, big news. Mount St. Helens in 1980 blows up. Half the mountain explodes. Lava everywhere, this is a big deal. 1980, Mount St. Helens blows up. 20 years later, scientists go to Mount St. Helens and using the latest and greatest technology to date lava rock, They dated that lava rock knowing it blew up 20 years earlier, but when the technology was used, it didn't come back 20 years old, it came back 20,000 years old. 
I'm just trying to say scientists act like they know how old everything is, and I'm trying to tell you they don't really know. Uh, and I could use one example like that after another after another. People say, well, it looks like it's been here a long time. Think about this for just a moment. When God created Adam, as he's going to, down toward the end of Genesis chapter 1, you get kind of an overview in chapter 1, gives you the details in chapter 2. Did God create Adam as a one-day-old baby or as a grown adult male? He created him as a grown adult male, even though he was one day old. See, he created Adam with the appearance of age. He created the entire earth and the universe with the appearance of age. So if it looks old, he created it to look old. He created it with an appearance of age. Let me ask you, Paradigm, what would a one-day-old rock look like anyway? Kind of like a million-year-old rock? <laughs> uh, what would a one-day-old mountain range look like anyway? Kind of like it's been there a long time, yes? People say, well, the universe is at least 400 billion years old. I mean, look at that star. That light is 400 billion light years away. We're looking at light that's 400 billion years old. But wait a minute. When God put the stars in the heavens, they could have been seen immediately from the earth. See, he created the universe with the appearance of age. I'm trying to tell you that we don't know how long it's been here, and in the end, I don't think that really matters, and I'm not sure why we care. What matters is how it got here. Now, I'm going to show you tonight why I'm convinced there's a space and time in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and this is not the traditional view. The traditional view is all this happens at the same time. But I'm going to show you from the text how there has to be a gap in time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 where Lucifer, the one we now know as Satan, rebels against God. Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, I want to give you two reasons why I'm convinced this has to be true. There's this gap in time in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 where Lucifer rebels. I could give you seven reasons tonight. I don't have time. If you ever go through our Discipleship 1 course and then go through our Discipleship 2 course, will teach you seven biblical reasons why, from the Bible, there's a gap in time between Genesis 1 and 1 2. I just want to give you two of those tonight. Number one is this, because the darkness demands it. The darkness demands it. Look what it says in Genesis 1 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, wait a minute. Where does this darkness come from? Because when you look in the scripture, I'm talking Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, what you discover is darkness is not an attribute of God, it's an attribute of Satan over and over again. The Bible makes this clear. Darkness is not an attribute of God. In fact, it says this in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now this isn't just allegory. This isn't just literally symbolism. Uh, this is God literally revealing himself about himself. He is light 
In fact, this is in the book of Hebrews. He's an all-consuming fire. In him is no darkness at all. So if by Genesis 1 and verse 2, there is no sin in the universe yet, there is no Satan in the universe yet, then where did the darkness come from? Because in eternity past, before there was time, the only thing that would existed was God, which means the only thing that existed with God was light. There would have been no darkness, which is why the Bible comes full circle in Revelation. 22, in eternity future, in the new heavens and new earth, guess what it says in Revelation 22? It will be eternal day. It'll never again be night. There will be no need for the sun, the moon, the stars, for the Lord himself, the S-O-N, will provide all the light. It'll never again be night. You see, the very fact that there is darkness in the universe is a reminder that something is wrong in the universe. There is sin in the universe. There is one known as Satan in the universe. You see, in Genesis 1 and verse 2, there's already darkness in God's creation, but God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And if that was not true, then by Genesis 1-3, God would not have had to say, let there be light. He would have had to say, let there be darkness. I want you to see what we see now in Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 is not only the origin of the cosmos and the origin of the universe, but you see now the origin of evil. What we're going to see now is the origin of Satan. Where did he come from? And what happens in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 has deeply shaped all of creation and all of humanity right even today, clear into the 21st century. Look at what it says in Ezekiel 28 and verse 12. I want you to know, we don't know what was on the earth in Genesis 1-1. We don't know a lot of intel about what was here in Genesis 1-1. We don't know how long it was here. Uh, before the insurrection, the rebellion took place, but the biblical intel we do have comes from Ezekiel 28. What we know existed in Genesis 1 and verse 1. Before there was Adam's race, there was the angelic race. In fact, Job 38.7 tells us that it was the morning stars, the angelic race that sang together and shouted for joy as they watched God himself laying the foundations of the earth. As they were witnessing his creation, they were worshiping him. The angelic race was created first. And we learn in Ezekiel 28 that the head of the angelic race was one known as the anointed cherub. Look what it says here in verse 12. Son of man... Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now we're going to see very quickly this, this, this prophecy, this lamentation, is not really dealing with the physical king of Tyre, but rather the spiritual king that was pulling his strings. Look at what it says. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. See, the ancient king of Tyre was never the seal of perfection. But there was another king pulling the strings behind the scenes that was in fact at one time the seal of perfection. It says, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now class, where is the garden of Eden? Where was it in Genesis chapter three? It's on the earth. I told you, you're gonna have to use your brain tonight. Everybody in still? I know it's hard on a Tuesday night. Long day at work, long day at school. Hard for me too, but I'm doing my best up here, okay? Yeah, Genesis chapter 3, what we know is Eden was on the earth. Uh, Where was the anointed cherub, the angelic race? In Genesis 1-1, they were reigning on the earth. 
and we see that there is one called the anointed cherub. He was reigning over the earth. The earth was his home, and Eden was his throne. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. I mean, he was the king of bling. I mean, this anointed cherub is literally made with jewel sto- jewel, jewels and gemstones and diamonds. You see, we know his name is Lucifer. That name means light bearer. And God created him with every jewel and gemstone. This isn't just jewelry that he's covered himself with. The essence of his being is, in fact, these precious gemstones and jewels. Why? Because he was created by God to bear the light of God. His name is Lucifer, light bearer. And God created him to stand before the throne of God, and he would reflect the bright white light of God. And when the bright white light of God would pass through this amazing, Amazing being that had been created with the various jewels and gemstones, the light of God would pass through him and flood the entire universe with every color of the rainbow. Can you imagine the beauty? Now you know why he was called the light bearer or the shining one. Now look at this. It says this. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. See, God created this being to be the head of the angelic race, the king of the angelic race. He's on his throne in Eden, and the earth is his home. Genesis 1 and verse 1. And not only is he the light bearer of God, not only is the bright white light of God passing through this amazing being, flooding the entire universe with every color of the rainbow, but he's actually created with musical instruments, with pipes, as in a pipe organ, with timbrels, as in tambourines. You see, as Job 38, 7 says, the angelic race was singing and worshiping and praising God as he laid the foundations of the earth. And all that we see, there was one, the angelic cherub, the anointed cherub, that was in fact playing the music and leading the angelic host in the worship of the living God. This was the purpose for which he was created. But there was a day that this being looked up from the earth looked up from his throne and said, in heaven, I want that throne. Look at what it says next. You were the anointed cherub. This word anointed in the Hebrew is the same word from which we get the word Messiah, the very title of the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. Now, don't be confused by this. He was never equal to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is deity, the second person of the Trinity. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one that spoke light into the darkness, that spoke something out of nothing. He is the one that created this being, but he has now crowned him as king over an angelic kingdom. He's given him a title. You are the anointed one, the messianic cherub who covers I established you you were on the holy mountain of God you were you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you see God did not create evil God is not the author of evil God is not the originator of evil we see that God created Satan as perfect. But like he would give Adam and like he would give you and me, he gave this one, the anointed cherub, a free will 
to choose him or reject him, worship him or rebel against him. He was perfect until iniquity was found in him. At some point along the way, as he's leading the angelic choir in the praise and worship of the living God, uh, somewhere along the way, as he is leading the angelic host in the worship of God, he looks at them, he looks at himself, and he thinks to himself, you know, none of them are quite as beautiful as me. I mean, I'm the only one with all this bling. I'm the only one covered with jewels and gemstones. I mean, I'm the only one with these pipes and these tambourines, and man, I am pretty awesome, aren't I? Yeah, he's lifted up now with the iniquity of pride. He's looking at himself and his beauty, and somewhere along the way, he thinks to himself, you know, while all these other angels are worshiping God, while they're all looking at me. And there was a moment when he looks up from his throne on the earth into the throne of heaven, and he says, I want that throne. I no longer want this throne. I no longer want the second chair. I want that chair. And Isaiah 14 tells us of his attack. It says in verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Why did he have to ascend? into heaven because he wasn't in heaven. He was on the earth. He was under heaven. He was reigning from his throne, Eden, and the earth was his home. He looks up into heaven and says, I will ascend into heaven, the first of five I wills. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. He wanted to be worshiped as God. He wanted to supplant God. He wanted to be like God. God looks at him and his insurrection. He drew a third of the angels with him, according to Revelation chapter 12, in this rebellion. And God looks at the light bearer that was created to bear the light of God, who said, I will be like the Most High God. And God says, oh, you want to be like me? Me light. Bam! You darkness. And the light bearer is instantly judged with darkness. And now you know why in Genesis 1-2 it tells us that darkness is on the face of the deep. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. But Ephesians 6-12 says that today you and I wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. He was cast out of the third heaven where he now makes his abode in the second heaven, the heavenlies, the cosmos, Ephesians 2, 2. He's the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus called him in John chapter 14, the ruler of this world. I want you to see that the darkness demands it. And this is what God has delivered you and me, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. You see, you and I, like those ancient Hebrews, are born in bondage. We are born in death and despair. We are born already under sin's penalty and Satan's captivity. We are born into a kingdom of darkness. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he conveys you and translates you into the kingdom of his son. You're no longer a child of the night. 
you become a child of the light, a son of the living God. You can begin to see why your origin story matters because your origin story is in fact your identity and your identity becomes your destiny. No, I am no longer under sin's penalty. No, I am no longer under Satan's authority. Jesus said, if the son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus says, I'm here to set you free and that is why I spilled my blood at Calvary. That's Becca's story. That's my story. I was once under the bondage of sin and the power of darkness till Jesus showed up and said, let there be light. And he spoke light into the darkness of my heart. And I've followed him ever since. Now there's a second thing, watch this. Not only does the darkness demand it, but the language of the text demands it. Look at Genesis 1-2 again. It says this, and the earth was without form and void. Now Genesis 1-1 says God created the heavens and the earth. That word in the Hebrew created is bara. It implies a finished product. It implies something that has been planed and sanded and polished. But by Genesis 1-2, it's no longer polished. It's without form and void. This word was. This word was is the Hebrew word haitha. Everybody say haitha. Now, you got to get a little bit of a cough in it. Now, if you're going to say it right, it's like, like clearing your throat. Go ahead, do this one. Haitha. Haitha. Be careful how far that loogie goes. You're probably sitting behind somebody. Everybody go like this now, would you? Okay. Haitha. This, this is how the Hebrews would say it, okay? They, they get a little, little bit of their tonsils into it. It's haitha. Haitha. Now, how do you do a Bible study paradigm? The Bible's not just meant to be read. It's meant to be studied. This is, this is how you do a basic, simple Bible study. You take a word like haitha. You get out your Strong's Concordance, and you start tracing how that word is used throughout Scripture. This word haitha is a very, very common Hebrew word. It's used dozens and dozens, even hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And when you begin to cross-reference and you begin to see how this word is used in other places and passages, it's sometimes translated as was, but more than not, it's actually translated as became. Or sometimes it came to pass. You literally are reading Genesis 1-2, and what you're reading is, and the earth became without form and void. The earth was without form and void. It became without form and void uh, over the process of time, or it came to pass that it became without form and void. That's the nature of Haitha. This is how it's translated over and over and over again. Now, it's not that was is a faulty translation, but think of our English word was. Uh, think about how we use it. If I point out an old beat-up pickup going down the road, and I point at it and I say, hey, look at that pickup. That was an old truck. I'm not saying the truck was always old. I'm saying it became old through the process of time. That's haitha. If I point out, and I'm not pointing at anybody specifically tonight, especially in this room, but if I were to point at somebody and say, man, that, that was an old man. Do you see that guy? That guy was old. No, you're not old. I'm not pointing at you. This just a, it's, it's an illustration, okay? Where's Ed Credo? I'm pointing at him, wherever he is. Okay. 
because he's probably one person here tonight older than me, okay? Here's the point. I'm pointing at a guy and saying, man, that was an old man. You see that guy? He was old. I don't mean by the word was that he was always old. I mean, Haitha, he became old through the process of time. You see what's going on in Genesis 1, 2 now? God is telling us that something made through the process of time, the earth without form and void, the earth became without form and void because of the insurrection, the rebellion of the anointed cherub that at one time reigned in Eden as its throne over the earth as his home. And you can begin to see why when you see Eden again in Genesis chapter 3 and God has put a new being in Eden. Eden, and he calls this man Adam, and he has what Satan always wanted. He's made in the image and likeness of God. Not only does this new man Adam have what Satan always wanted, the image and likeness of God, but he now has dominion over the earth. Eden is his throne, and the earth is his home, and you better believe Satan wanted it back. And now you know why he hated Adam so desperately. In Genesis chapter 3, he knows what he has to do, and he immediately goes on the attack. He has to get this man to sin, so he loses the perfect image and likeness of God. And he knows if he can get Adam to sin, that dominion will be transferred back to him. And that's exactly what happened, which is why it says in 1 John 5, 19, the entire world currently lies under the power of the wicked one. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Satan is the God, little g, of this age. Because currently he is a counterfeit king reigning over the earth because he took it from Adam when Adam sinned. And that's what happens to you and me. You are made as a child of God for dominion. But when you succumb to sin, you submit again to him. Which is why the way you exercise your authority as a child of God is to pursue a life that is holy. I will not be a slave when Jesus has set me free. Now, it says, and the earth was without form and void. Was haitha, without form and void. It's the Hebrew tohu vabohu. Everybody say tohu. I didn't say tofu. It's tohu. Tohu vabohu. Without form and void. What do you do? You begin tracing that phrase again. These are phrases used throughout the Old Testament. And when you do, you discover tohu vabohu. Without form and void. It's translated as emptiness, futility, vanity, chaos, confusion. You see, the earth is now in a state of emptiness, vanity, futility, chaos, confusion. And when you trace those phrases through the Old Testament, you discover they are always associated with judgment, just like this darkness. The Hebrews had multiple words for darkness, but this word for darkness is always used when it's implying judgment. It's the same word as darkness that is implied and used specifically in the Exodus account as one of the 10 plagues that God sent on faith. Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You remember the plague of darkness? It says in the text, darkness that could be felt. You see, this darkness is associated with judgment, as is this chaos and confusion, the earth now without form and void. Do you understand paradigm that when you choose to live in sin and rebellion against him, it'll always result in your life tohu vabohu, chaos, confusion. Emptiness, futility, 
And you begin to see why your origin story matters so deeply to your identity and your destiny. Because most people you know are living a life of tohu vabohu. Chaos, confusion, depression, desperation, and ultimately ruin. The wages of sin is death. But in the middle of Genesis 1-1, in the middle of Genesis 1-2, God knew exactly what he was going to do. And it had to do with me and you. You see, as God was creating the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, and in that moment, as all the angels were singing, Job 38 and verse 7, they were worshiping God as they saw him in this great creative act, and he was laying the foundations of the earth, and he knew this anointed cherub was leading this angelic host in the worship of the living God. He knew everything ahead of time. He knew what would happen. He knew the anointed cherub would lead a rebellion. He knew that anointed cherub would become the one we now know as Satan, we knew the anointed cherub would in fact go back to that same garden and he would attack that man that he now has this plan to establish this kingdom that would be without end. And he knew that Adam would fall to temptation and he knew the cost of redeeming a fallen creation. And paradigm, listen carefully, sin and the curse of sin on all of creation extended far beyond simply Adam. Job 25 and verse five says, even the stars are not clean. The residue of sin now exists over all of creation. But God had a plan in that moment. As he laid the foundations of the world, that plan was Revelation 13 and verse eight. Jesus himself, it says, is the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. See, even before you were here, even before there was a me, even before there was a you, even before there was an Adam, even before there was the sin of men that brought down the sin and penalty upon all of us, his posterity, I'm trying to tell you, God knew exactly what he was going to do. The second person of the Trinity was going to come as humanity. He was gonna bleed and die for the sin of men and women. And as he would bleed on Calvary, he would reverse the curse of sin brought down by Adam. It says these words in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In paradigm, what we need more than anything tonight is the forgiveness of sin. You see, it is sin that brought down tohu vabohu on all of creation, and it is sin that brings down tohu vabohu on all of our lives. This is why Jesus died. It was the sin of a man, Adam, that brought down the curse of sin for all men and all women. Only the death of an innocent man could reverse the curse of sin for all men and all women. The problem is all have sinned, so God himself came to do 
what no man ever could. He became a man to become our sacrificial lamb. He is the image of the invisible God. This speaks of Jesus, the firstborn over all of creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This is speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. He is the one that created everything in Genesis 1 and verse 1. It is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, that created all the heavens and the earth. He is the one that spoke light into the darkness and spoke something out of nothingness. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. And by all things, he's talking about you. See, our sin has separated us from our Creator. God is holy. That means sinless. Yet, as fallen members of Adam's race, there's not one among us that is anything less than sinful. And that sin has brought tohu vabohu on all of creation so that we live in a world of tears and trials and pain and death and suffering and suicide and COVID and cancer and funerals, cataclysms, natural disasters, wars, injustice, bloodshed. It's tohu vabohu, chaos, confusion. Yet Jesus came to reconcile it all. Reconciliation over all of creation. You see, God's plan has not been destroyed by sin. It's been delayed by sin, but it has not been destroyed by sin. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, is even now reversing the curse of the first. The question is, will you let him reconcile you to your God? That's the number one question every single one of us has to answer. What will be your decision? Tonight, he's calling you to himself. And no, it does not matter how long the earth has been here, whether you believe it's 6,000 years old or millions of years old. Don't get caught up in all the peripheral issues it's exactly what the devil, the enemy of your soul, would like you to do. You don't have to answer all the questions. Listen, science has answered a lot of questions about the universe, but science will never answer them all. There are some things we cannot fully understand. You know why? Because it was created by a fully infinite God. And you and I, we're finite. No, the only question that really begs an answer is what will you do with Jesus? He is the one that created you. He is the one that made you. Check this out. 
Psalm 147 and verse 4 says, God has numbered all the stars and he calls them all by name. Imagine the trillions and tens of trillions and trillions and tens of trillions. Astronomers don't even know how many stars are in our own galaxy and our own Milky Way galaxy with its trillions and trillions of stars is only one galaxy of trillions and trillions of galaxies. Yet we have a God of the cosmos, the creator of the cosmos, who numbers all the trillions of stars and he knows them all by name and this same God, he knows you by name. No, your life is not a great cosmic accident. No, you are more than a bag of flesh and bones and hormones. Oh, you are so much more than just a highly evolved hominid. Oh, you are so much more. Your life is not an accident. Your life was ordained by the creator of the cosmos that has named and numbered every single star. Your life is a miracle. Just think about this for a moment, the statistical impossibility that you would ever be born. Just think about this with me for a moment. Do you know if you go back five generations, just five generations, you know, this is the age of Ancestry.com. You go back five generations, you have 64 grandmas and grandpas. And if just one of your grandpas had not met your grandma, guess what would have happened to you? It's not an accident you're here. same God that numbered and named all the stars. He knows you by name. You were made to know him too. The only question is, what will you do? It's by him, Jesus. He came to reconcile all things to himself. By him were the things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace instead of tohu vabohu a world at war with itself, a universe at war with itself, a creation at war with itself. Tohu vabohu, or peace, what will it be? Jesus shed his blood to bring peace and end the war, the enmity between you and the one that made you, you and the one that created you. You see, God is more than Elohim. He's more than merely a creator. He is, in fact, Yahweh. Where Elohim means creator, Yahweh means covenant. He is the God of the covenant. A covenant has to do with a relationship. It's a covenant sealed by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. See, he's your creator, but he desires to be your savior. Tonight is the night. If you have not let him be that one, all you got to do is say, Jesus, I trust you. I want you. Forgive me of my sin. Help me follow you now as my Savior, my King. In Jesus' name, amen. God in heaven, I pray for every person here tonight. God, thank you for these men and women. I pray that God, not one tonight, would lay their head on their pillow without making a decision to follow and trust in the one that made them and created them and gave his life, bled and died 
and rose from the dead to give them life. In Jesus' name, amen.